Hi, my name is Anna Wynn, and this is Critical Literary Consumption. This is a space where I ask us to reflect on our reading and writing practices. In particular, I want us to think about what is a citation, what does a citation represent, how do we use or activate a text or a citation in our own writing and analyzing practices. And so for today, I will be interviewing Dr. Ashley Barnwell, who is a senior research fellow in sociology and social theory at University of Melbourne. Her research interests are in emotion, memory, narrative, and family storytelling. A few months ago, I reviewed Ashley's most recent book, Critical Affect, The Politics of Method, for the London School of Economics book blog. For today's conversation, we'll be primarily talking about her book and her research interests at large. So I read your book, Critical Affect, as mainly a simultaneous question and critique of a method, that scholars who use affect as a method is simply a return to the interdisciplinary debate of who gets to tell whose stories, what counts as a new method, and which genre best narrates the complexity of social life. Is this the politics of method, or what do you mean by this evocative phrasing? What are your interventions and critiques on affect as a theory and method in its current usage? Okay. Well, um, I should, like I should say, to, to start that, actually, it actually took me 10 years to write this book. So I started it about 10 years ago when affect was, it was sort of the hottest thing at that time, the newest thing. And I started it with my dissertation. So for me, it was, I think that's important part of the story of how I came to write the book is that it's sort of like it's when you start as a graduate student, you're just trying to find your place, you know, where you'll position yourself and um, what kind of arguments you'll make and that kind of thing. And I was, I had very broad tastes <laughs> and I was trying to figure out what kind of questions I would ask. And I was really interested in classical sociological theory and I was really interested in post-structural theory and psychoanalytic theory and also in affect theory. And so I would go along to a lot of um, seminars and things and, and it was kind of like affect theory was positioned a bit against the other things that I was interested in. So I got quite curious about that, like the way that when you kind of take up a position, it can mean like being interested in some things but also by virtue of that being like having to be not interested in other things so that's kind of how it started thinking about the politics of method like to take a position what does that mean that you see or don't see and what kinds of things um are expected of you when you position yourself in a particular way as a scholar so i think that's how yeah that's how i got interested in that idea of the politics of method um, that, 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 that you kind of step into an inherent politics that's already in play and it's a very, you know, it's something that's hundreds of years old um, and so you don't understand all of it as a student. Um, but, yeah, getting into that is a, is a very eye-opening thing and, and so strangely the thesis and the project just became something that got stuck in the methodology chapter and the whole project became about that question, mm-hmm. methodology. I really like the subtitle, The Politics of Method, because um, even in, in today's academic world, people still believe in some sort of objectivity or neutrality, even when they're trying to tell someone's stories that like a, a story could become a fact or a testimony could become a fact. But I'm a bit uneasy with this whole neutral stance, because I think it's, I, to me, I find it a, quite a violent word. And so I wonder, mm. 
this hesitation of using this term politics or political. Why, why, are, why are young scholars or even just graduate students interested in trying to find the truth of a certain narrative, do you think? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I wouldn't just, I wouldn't limit it just to young scholars. I think almost mm-hmm. everything we read is, is interested in that, um, asking questions about the world and wanting to understand the times that we're living in, the times that have come before us and these kinds of questions. I mean, it, in what you're saying, that was one of the things that was very interested in the book is how right. can we think about method as part of this mess mm-hmm. of what life is? Um, so it's not as if we have to find the right method and then we can access the most fluid, most dynamic kind of view of the world mm-hmm. um, and, the mo- you know, get closer to the material, um, you know, what's important about life and the substance of life and how it moves. But actually that method is also a part of that. It's also something that's completely dynamic and, and changes no matter who's using it. And that's part of the politics of it is that it's always alive and it's always um, completely open to that very moment of who is looking and what are they looking at and, and um, all of the kind of dynamic context of that particular moment. I think that's why I found it really hard to just work with the idea of methodology as something where you picked up a kind of apparatus that had a set kind of set of constraints or views that you could work with and that you could take it forward in that way. Um, yeah, I was quite looking into a lot of, uh, at that time was reading um, Karen Barad and, and trying to understand quantum physics and, and all of that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I became really interested in, in those views of methodology as something that it's um, completely part of the experiment is the is the way it's set up and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, getting back to those broader technical ideas of method, but also, yeah, as mm-hmm. you're saying, trying to think about what is the kind of ontological um, assumptions that are in place when we think about method. Right. So throughout the book, you mentioned a lot of case studies, and um, I'm really familiar with the science world in the 1990s. That's part of my terrain in the science and technology studies. Okay. And- and so I thought it was really interesting the way you point out this this idea of a meta critique, so the critique of critique, and you cited mm. Bruno Latour. Well, you cited a lot of people, but in particular that Bruno Latour piece, everyone has cited has critique Renaud steam in, mm. in various ways. And I'm never really sure how to read Bruno Latour. But one of your bigger points is that sometimes we find, or when we read the oeuvre of um or a complete scholarship historical scholarship of one particular scholar that you notice some some tensions or some some maybe boredom that they're they're looking for some new new innovative ways to look at the world and I think that's what I really appreciated from your book so Mm. I'm wondering is there a tension with with what you see as scholars trying to look at innovative ways of telling the story of a social life or social worlds because you keep bringing back the the topic of the social and literary worlds that that continue mm. to converge, emerge, and then maybe they're obscure, but they always come back. So, yeah. do, you, do you think a lot of scholars take for granted what text could be? So we don't we shouldn't limit ourselves in just scholarship, but look for fiction. And you cited H. G. Wells and Zola, you know. And yeah. what what do you think is the purpose of a method if mm. if it, if it keeps being separated into sociology, literary, scientific, or, or whatever else? Yeah. 
I mean, I think that exactly it's, I became really interested in how sociology formed as a discipline because that's like my training as a sociologist Mm -hmm. and that it's always kind of in this mix of, you know, between science and literature, but also, I guess, completely involved in questions of what's, what's fact and what's fiction or what's Mm -hmm. evidence and what's interpretation and, um, yeah, in terms of thinking it through with what you were saying about a particular scholar's biography and their kind of life's work, like Eve Sedgwick was another one that I was really interested yeah. in and kind of could follow. And and in terms of like her, um, I guess, sense of, of feeling, um, you know, that there wasn't as much left in critique as a method yeah. for her or a way of approach as there had been before, it's, I think it's really compelling. Like it's, you can see that story makes sense to her and her career and her interests in life. Mm-hmm. But I guess I could see that actually when I was looking through a lot of those arguments and um, I guess the thing is that it, that's true, you know, for that particular scholar that, that, that is true that they've, they've kind of come to the end of an interest in that. But I think it's quite a different thing than to say that that particular way forward or the, that particular view or methodology itself has no further kind of use because Mm -hmm. you know it's very interesting the way that things can be reanimated um or that they come to take can be used in really different ways and I think that's something I think about when I'm teaching all the time because I teach classical sociological literature Mm -hmm. um and um and students are always like, why are we reading this thing that's so old by all these old white guys, all these old Europeans? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's the work of, of working with that um, is that you really have to think what, what can be done with this now? Like mm-hmm. what is the value of, of these texts? Um, and that's the work of it. So I guess for the book that was what I was really interested in was this approach where um, you could try and remain critical of things and to, to think about why it is that you might, you might not see the utility of a particular approach anymore or the value in it. But then also to, to be, try and be really generous and think about what can be taken forward or are there particular ways that people might reanimate it or even just to leave it open to someone else to still see the value um, mm. in that. Um, because I think that's something when you teach all the time, like students have responses to things and you think, I came into the classroom thinking that they would read this in this way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people see students see new things in it depending on what it is that they're interested in or the kind of I guess political and social spheres that they're engaged in which I'm too old to make sense of now um but you know it's yeah I don't know if that I think I only picked up half your question there I should try again for the other half I read a lot of theory and maybe that's to my detriment because sometimes I can't get out of the theoretical spheres and bubbles that I live in but I always find that your theory should match your method. And sometimes when I read recent scholarship where they insert some citations that seem unrelated to the main narrative that they're trying that the scholar is trying to describe to me, I, I wonder what, what's the utility of a citation nowadays when it's when it could be taken out of context, when it doesn't really show me the main ideas that they're trying to to communicate. Yeah. One of my bigger research interests is the understanding of a, an academic and a scientific text that, you know, we're, we're very used to a specific template 
that we have a literature review, a method section, but sometimes they feel so disjointed to me. So I always want to ask myself, and when I used to teach, is there a way to make the citations and the theoretical background more fluid rather than disjointed? So I'm curious how you teach those kind of writing, analyzing, citational practices to your student Mm. as as a trained sociologist. Yeah. I mean, to me, close reading was a really powerful um, way of doing that. And that was, I guess, part of the, when I was talking about why I got started on this this particular Mm -hmm. question with this book, um, was that I was sort of being advised, like, it is no longer the thing to do, close reading. Like, that that was sort of part of that deconstruction moment. And um, it's no longer in vogue as, as the thing to do. But for me, it seemed that there's a really important ethics to doing that, to really get very close to something, especially if you want to be critical of it, mm-hmm. um, to really show how that you understand what it was that per- that author was trying to do um, and, then, and then almost to really track people through so that they can see and it's justified exactly the points that you want to make. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's broad kind of structural conditions that make that work difficult, like, we have workloads that make it really hard to do that kind of really deep reading and thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't always read things as closely and um, as we might want to as scholars, I think. So that can make it really tricky. And I find myself sometimes like I'll put in citations of work that I, like I know and I've read, but I don't know really, really deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there's kind of broader structural issues around that, that we always need to be mindful. But Mm-hmm. For me, close reading is one of the things that I really try and do in the classroom as well, you know, to put up a passage and to get students to really sit with it and think about, you know, you read something once, but if you read something again and then again and again, each time you will see deeper into that. Um, and I think that that's a really important ethics of reading too, to make mm-hmm. sure that you've spent the time that's needed Um with something and to yeah I think as as you're saying like maybe that's a way to move away from that very disconnected thing between Mm -hmm. the literature and the methodology Mm -hmm. um when you can really get inside the literature and it's not just sort of checking off fields but really Mm -hmm. thinking through what someone was trying to do um and the way that they were viewing things and then maybe what what that particular position didn't allow them to see or yeah. So when I reviewed your book for the LSE blog, um, I, I really like the ending chapter where you're trying to think about this very critical way of reading with differences, but with some sort of um, generosity. And my mentor at Harvard right now, she, she uses this phrasing a lot, this epistemic charity when, when one reads someone's text. And I think that I'm, I haven't asked her exactly what it means, but it's something that I think about. What does it mean to read someone's work when you're just kind of assigned to it and you don't know much about the authorial background? Mm. And when what if what happens if you know that person's like a Heidegger who has some sort of um, Nazi history, yeah. you know? And so, what does that mean for the text versus the author? And I I wonder how do we read mindfully knowing all this kind of trouble history with certain scholarships, many of whom we probably admire at one point, and then they they pass away, but their texts remain activated and alive because we choose to teach them, maybe mm. in some sort of contemporary and historical setting. So how 
How does a professor or any teacher teach a student how to read critically, charitably, and with care? Mm. Yeah. And but with, with also um, without censoring students from being able to respond to the things that are really problematic about mm-hmm. the text too. Because it's the same, you know, teaching classical sociological theory in Australia, it's like in a settler colonial context. Right. You know, the the way that all that anthropological or kind of armchair data is completely racist and misinterpreting of cultures and, and of people, um, of living cultures. And so it's that's a very real thing, like in an Australian classroom when you're working with those texts and it's a very important thing not to tell students that, oh, but this is just old and so right. they were men of their times. I yeah. think that that can be a bit of a cop-out right. um, and it's sort of, it doesn't give enough to the liveness of a text and, as you say, the responsibility of if you're going to teach it and keep opening this up. Um, so I think one one thing is always that, there are new readings of these texts and it's really good to put them into dialogue. Like the students have their own reading, but also to to bring in all of the kind of critical work that's done around that and to read, to access those texts through particular lenses and not have one that you say, okay, this is the right way of reading Mm -hmm. and this is the wrong way, Um, but to let students see how, you know, each person brings their life experience and can open up new questions and can see things. Um, I always do Stuart Hall's The West and the Rest because mm-hmm. it, that's, you know, and he uses a Foucauldian framework mm-hmm. and those kinds of things, but he works with it really critically in that critique of, of the Western canon of theory. And, yeah, it's just to say to students, like, this is, it took for Stuart Hall to come and to read these texts in order to open up this whole new way Mm-hmm. of being able to access them um, and think about what value they might have and and what we need to be critical and wary of in terms of recognising the kind of worldview that was in play there and that is yeah. perpetuated by it. Um, but I really loved your idea of epistemic charity when I read the review. <laughs> I was like, oh, I wish I'd known this phrase when I wrote the book. Oh, um, it's so interesting. Yeah. Like I was... Um, one of the things that really was something I carried through the whole time I wrote the book was Barbara Johnson's work from The Critical Difference and mm-hmm. this idea that she says um, around deconstruction is that it's not just looking to go beyond binaries because that right. would be to set up a new binary in itself. Right. But actually to sit with difference um, and see the more and more you look at it, the more complex and messy it is and the more things are more similar in a lot of ways than they recognise or the way that they use um, their difference from something in order co- to constitute themselves. And mm-hmm. I think that's something I, I thought about a lot when I was writing the book um, in terms of my own reading practice. But something that I really think about when I'm yeah. teaching as well, so how, how, and it's, it's still a question for me. I mean, I don't know exactly yeah. if I'm doing the right thing, but how to teach students about that sitting with, with something that seems to be maybe polemically different Mm -hmm. and to try and understand what is the kind of entanglement of relationship of of those things. I find myself thinking a lot about text and what it means to do readings with care. When you were a a PhD student, did did you have any class that taught you how to to read? Not really. Yeah, I found like 
I was really confused when I got back into grad school after a, a, um, a few years of not not sure if I wanted to go back to grad school. And then when I did go into grad school for my master's, I I was a bit confused with a lot of the readings. And so I find that like I had to read the citations to know the actual text. But I think there's a detriment in assuming how one even reads to survive a class is, is something that I think hasn't been addressed. And to read well, I think, I don't even know what that means, but what I mm. do see most often, especially when I'm teaching um, undergrads, is like there's this liberal tendency to use citations to mean whatever they want. And, and I don't know how much freedom a citation will allow that. When, when I'm grading their papers, I think that the citation doesn't say what you want it to say, but you just, you manipulate it in such a way that works for you. But I never know how to contest the citation or try mm. to, to teach a student that there's a difference between universalizations and then the main critique and not focus yeah. on just the simple case study. What I've learned from myself and from other my other colleagues and from teaching is that somewhere along the way, someone has told them that it's okay to do this kind of supermarket sweep, that you can just pull on words and assemble them, mm. but they don't necessarily have to make sense or be, or be correct in their usage, whatever correct means in this case. And I wonder, mm. when, when you're teaching um, your students sociological theory, is there a time that you just find yourself thinking, this is, this is absolutely wrong, context, everything? And how do you tell your student that there's, there is maybe a bad reading of a particular yeah. text? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that definitely <laughs> happens. Um, I think it usually goes back to that question of, you know, having to say, sometimes I think, oh, no, I've done a bad job here <laughs> teaching them the text. But also that sometimes it's like, well, they, they haven't spent the time. Yeah. And and I think, yeah, there's a lot of reasons students have horrible conditions <laughs> living in apartments without kitchens and yeah. often part-time jobs and all those kinds of things. But, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that it's, it's that there can be um, a reading that hasn't done the work or a student that, that could really benefit from pushing themselves more by thinking yeah. with a text. It's like they have a kind of response to it and they think, okay, this is when I want to write about it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's their first response and then they're just seeing the parts in the text that might support that or um, validate that first response. And I think first responses can be really crucial, like the kind of instinct or intuition you have when you read mm -hmm. something. Like oftentimes like a text could really irritate you and, and you don't know, maybe you work on that text for a couple of years before you really understand why yes. it got under your skin. Yeah, <laughs> you know that experience. I know, yes, yes, very common. So I think sometimes, yeah, that's, it's, it's when you, students come and they say, why did I get this grade on this paper? <laughs> and then you have to sit with them and say, you know, mm -hmm. this is why. I think after kind of pushing them a bit to ask some questions, oftentimes they see it themselves, yeah, that they didn't. It could have gone a lot further with it. Yeah. But it's just having that time, I think, and yeah. having the encouragement to do it. Sometimes it can be about not feeling like you have the right to say things about those really big canonical texts. Yeah. And thinking like, uh, you know, it's so held up on a pedestal that me, a lonely grad student or um, under, undergrad student, like doesn't have the right to, to make arguments about it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think making sure that students feel kind of encouraged and that their voice matters.
Mm-hmm. And then it's okay to kind of, I always think about the, you know, the essay means to try. Yeah. It's French, okay yeah, to kind yeah. of, <laughs> yeah, push mm-hmm. yourself and like it doesn't matter if it comes off a bit silly or, you know, I think when you grade papers, you appreciate that kind of diamond in the rough more than a slick essay that doesn't really say much. Right. When you can see that someone's sort of taking a bit of a risk and followed their ideas a bit further. And I don't know if you have that too. You can see that. <laughs> Sometimes I think it's actually honest if, if I tell students that sometimes whoever we're reading is making, making it very difficult to read. A lot of academic writing is quite, mm. you know, it's quite jargony. It takes some time and skill and patience. If I mean, sometimes I don't even have patience when I'm reading. But I'm always reminded when I, I just sent an email to a philosopher acquaintance of mine. He's about to retire. And we were talking about writing practices of all things, because I really like to annoy people with this, this, like journaling my thoughts. And he said something that I think about a lot. He said that he, he notices a lot of people, they try to emulate Deleuze and Donna Haraway in ways that is they're making their own writing practices willfully obscure or difficult to read and and he finds that a big problem in current mm. you know he's a he's a much older man so maybe he um maybe he has a bit of a different experiential ways of teaching how to read and write but there are times that I read something, I just think, I don't have any idea what this person is saying. I recognize the citations, but mm. I'm not sure if I understand how how the citations are used to to further someone's point. And in my last podcast with Keze Lehman, he talks a lot about the limitations of language and even just learning conceptual language that it actually could be harmful because we're not actually using the language to reorient our practices of liberating others or being kinder to people in general that and yeah. it's, it's something that I'm trying to be mindful of that you know all this academic jargon language they may be well-meaning but there's some limitations to the audience outreach and so when I do my my vignettes and I'm talking to restaurant workers my restaurant and food is mainly my research focus I try not to t- talk at them because I'm trying to have a conversation, but I find that a lot of the times I have to to unlearn those those very elitist language just to make just to make a point. But then I'm also worried about well, am I the person to write someone's story? And if I if I do appoint myself that that opportunity, am I doing justice to them? Because I'm always interested in the question of representation and justice. Mm. And then, then, of course, there's this notion that when you send them your piece with the, you know, the academic citations, does it really mean anything to them at all? And so I'm very troubled by these notions of what, mm. what, I, what I want my writing as a new scholar, a new academic to be for the people outside of that of the, yeah. the institution. I, f- I feel like that too because I'm a sociologist, like I do a lot of empirical research, like I, I interview people also. And I think that that's, yeah, sometimes as you say, the, the kind of conceptual language around particular theories is something that 
can be a kind of placeholder. I think sometimes maybe everybody means something quite different when they use the term assemblage or Mm -hmm. something like that. And there's an assumption that everybody kind of means the same thing and that you can just use that kind of language. And, uh, you know, the book I wrote about affect theory, but I kind of tried to say in the introduction that it's about turns more generally. And, you know, that was kind of the turn that was happening when I was studying, but there'd been many before of that kind of thing where, yeah, this is the language that's that's current and that people are steeping their work in. And it can become a kind of cloak, I think. And sometimes you're not actually sure what what's happening, what someone's doing with that that conceptual language. And I'm, I've been really attuned to that because I don't come from an educated family or background. So I think I've always, like myself even, sometimes felt like a bit of a stranger in the academy and sometimes felt like oh I'm a bit embarrassed because I don't understand what people are talking about mm-hmm. and I think once you get inside the you do realize that sometimes it's just posturing actually and it wasn't that you didn't understand it it was actually that it was pretty unclear mm-hmm. so I think I'm, I try and always be mindful of that as well as the, the kind of as you're saying like the sometimes there's an elitism to using that language and mm-hmm. and one of the things I try and think about because I'm doing a project at the moment about intergenerational family secrets and interviewing families and for me I think a big part of what I've turned to now after kind of doing a PhD in social theory and, and teaching theory a lot is to look for theory in the vernacular like actually a lot of the time when I go back through transcripts, people say things that are so profound and actually much more um, nuanced in capturing some aspect of experience than the theory I'm working with and thinking I'm going to use to understand what these people are saying. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the time now I find myself actually using people's actual language as the way to, to draw out the conceptual or the ethical or theoretical value that's, that's coming out in that research. And rather than theory being the thing you use to apply mm-hmm. and understand that it's actually what's coming out. And, and to me, I feel more responsible than going back to people who have given me their time and who've been generous enough to share their stories with me and for them to, to see that I have actually listened. Like it is their words that are what is bringing the, the story to life and the ideas out. Yeah, so... I'm not sure. I, I think it's for me, it's a really live question too of yes. how best to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes I often think like maybe there's something just really inherently unethical about research. But it, as you say, it's like maybe you can't just abandon ships. So you really have to puzzle through and work out what's the most ethical way you can in that particular situation to mm-hmm. do that work. Yeah. Ashley, I want to circle back to what you were saying earlier about your critical affect book being a 10 years in the making. In the introduction, you talked about how you started your project as a memoir, so an autoethnography of some sort. So can I ask you why that direction changed? Because I consider your piece a very lovely uh, meditation on theoretical practices and how these topics that emerged may not necessarily be a new kind of disciplinary debate. So I love reading theoretical pieces. And I think it's so timely because everyone uses this word affect now. And mm. when people started using it, I, I thought about affect in a different sense because I read some from a master's. I read phenomenology. And I thought there's no real yeah. distinction, but there apparently is a distinction. So can I ask you about your genealogy of the project and how it took shape and form and what changed? Yeah. I was interested in literary hoaxes when I started and this idea that when something gets revealed as having been a hoax, a particular text, 
then there's all these kinds of discussions about why was it so believable when in hindsight actually it's completely incredulous. Like people point out all the things that made it, you know, that you should have known straight away that this was a total crock. (laughs) But, yeah, so I I became really interested in that. What happens there, and that's where it started really, thinking about genre and the flexibility Mm -hmm. of it. Like we think genres have particular rules, but actually and particularly around kind of identity politics and that kind of thing, like it people can tell a story and they can be, get permission to tell that and then it's okay. So it's actually a lot about how the, the ethics of how someone's gone about telling that story or telling someone else's story. And it's not just about the hard and fast rules of genre, but it's actually a really sociological thing that happens there where it's very much about the context and it's very much about what happens in that particular case and that that's really subject to change, like something that can be sanctioned if different things come into play, then it's it's no longer sanctioned. So I was really interested in in following that and I wanted to do some kind of audience studies around that as well. I started looking at, it was actually part, part of it might have been in the US if I'd have not got stuck in the methodology chapter. <laughs> but I was looking at the stolen valor laws that came in and some of the imposture of people pretending to be veterans. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at a particular case where, this person had been revealed to not actually have served and some people came out and they were really angry about that and they hadn't known but then they also spoke to a group of veterans that had known that, that, that this person had actually said things and they're like well that's not true like that's actually impossible you can't have this particular place substance in that particular place and these things and they said well why didn't you blow the whistle on this guy and they said well he was a pretty good storyteller like one of the problems <laughs> that you know we have trauma and it's really actually hard to speak about experience yeah. and this guy was really good at fundraising because he'd get up there and tell mm-hmm. this very articulate mm-hmm. story and be crying and all this kind of stuff and I thought that's it really interested me that idea that the truth value of a story can be quite fluid depending on what people need or what mm-hmm. they how they interpret it and what they if they perceive it to be a threat or that kind of thing so all of that contextual stuff so the project started looking at that and I think yeah it's interesting as you say I hadn't thought of that before it's almost like it kind of stays in autoethnography because then it just becomes about this experience of how you take a position mm-hmm. and and I you know I sort of really avoided taking a position in a way like I really wanted to, to think about how it just happens over and over again this intergenerational mm-hmm. thing of a turn and then it turns back and then it turns back and then it turns back and actually the question that's that's at play is the same one that remains and it doesn't really get resolved. And maybe the resolvability of that isn't the thing that's most interesting or mm-hmm. possible anyway. But to try and be attuned to the fact that this is something that's come before actually and it's not always new. And I wrote a paper with a colleague of mine, Florence Chu, that's in the Sociological Review and it's about methodological intimacies. And we were trying to think about this idea of twinning instead of turning. Like what does it mean to do theoretical work from that place of entanglement rather Mm -hmm. than separation? So I think, yeah, I didn't get, (laughs) it became a very different project. In some ways I don't even know how projects evolve, (laughs) how how they become, you know, you start quite determinedly to work on something. Yeah, but it's, it's still a very subjective piece, I think, in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
Can I ask you about your newer project about the intergenerational? Yeah. How, do you consider that as a follow-up to critical affect or? Um... I do in a roundabout way. I think because it was a theoretical piece, I really wanted to get out and, and talk to people. I think it can be quite lonely writing um, theory yes. because it's just you and the books, you know. Yes. And so I knew that I wanted to return to doing an empirical project. And I had been quite interested in this, this separation between affect and structure mm-hmm. oh. and wanting to find a way where I could look at what seems kind of intangible and unspoken and unspeakable even and all of those kinds of things that affect theory is quite interested in, because I'm really interested in that, that kind of the spectral kind of stuff too, but then also really thinking through how that's also a structural thing. So that's why I became interested in secrets in families and how something can be never spoken about or maybe even not acknowledged, but it remains present. Actually, it's transmitted across generations. So, yeah, it came from the ideas but it's kind of taken on all of its its own thing now. Mm-hmm. But it did it did very much come from the questions I was interested in critical affect, particularly in the later chapters. Mm-hmm. When can we expect that? <laughs> <laughs> well, given it took me ten years to finish this one, I mean, let's uh, maybe it's a, a project per decade. But yeah, it's a big project. It's a national study, so I'm going around to, as you know, mm. we have a big island continent so yeah. going around all the states and territories and talking to families and it has been quite delayed by COVID because our state yeah. borders have been shut and mm-hmm. I've been doing zoom interviews which has been really nice but oh, it's, no. it's also about being in people's homes yeah because I'm quite interested in mm-hmm. how families displayed family photographs and albums and where mm-hmm. they're kept and those kinds of things so it would be nice when I can get back on the road and yeah so I'll write papers along the way I think that's how I work is that I sort of work through papers and ideas and then it takes a while before I can kind of coalesce into something bigger I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's the same for you I tend to write like micro vignettes and then I I try to situate them in the macro and you know that's just been my literary flourish but I don't yeah I I'm still trying to learn the ways of academic publishing because more often than not I get really unkind peer review comment so. <laughs> so yeah that's one of the awful things isn't it it can yes. be so discouraging yeah and sometimes you feel like oh no there's not been the time spent here yes <laughs> that sounds interesting what, what mm. do you mean by vignette I always try to situate some particular time period at a location and then think about the the bigger global order or disorder that I'm trying to think about mm. so like my last my last piece I wrote for my Harvard fellowship, it was it's called STS in Crisis. And we're, it was when COVID was new, I don't know, like whatever new means. And we were under lockdown and sometimes my partner and I got tired of cooking. So we'd go to the, the closest restaurant and I noticed gradual changes that they were trying to update their guidelines and rules and try to encourage people to continue to order out, but with limitations and this notion of a disappearing restaurant I was really interested in. But that particular snapshot moment led me to think about what does state responsibility mean before COVID and what happens when any kind of crisis happens Yeah, that impacts the smaller restaurant business owners. Yeah, mm. So that's what I mean, the micro within the macro. So 
Yeah. Thinking about those kinds of real world, really detailed real world stories. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We've had a lot of that. I mean, I guess the thing that's happened here is what is similar. It's like just an expose and we all knew how much insecure labor there was, but it's been a real expose of just how, how insecure that leaves us as a social body when we're not taking proper care of people. Mm. I think that's all my questions for you. I'm really curious about your book, but maybe I'll just wait for you to finish that and then you can come back on the podcast. <laughs> we can talk, do like a comparative project question. Yeah, we'll have a few gray hairs by then maybe. <laughs> I think I already have gray hairs from doors. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and um, please stay safe and good luck with the rest of your projects and I hope uh, you keep in touch. Too. Yeah, Yeah. me too. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been so nice to talk about the book. And, you know, it's really, it's a a different phase when it's like people have read it and you can discuss things and see connections with other people's work too. Mm -hmm. It's a really exciting thing. So thanks so much for having me on, Anna. Yes, thank you so much, Ashley. Have have a good, it's nighttime here. Uh, Have a good rest of the day. Yeah, yeah, you too. (laughs) Good night. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at anandroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.